Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I am Sarah Black. And today we are recording in the Hooper Hathaway House. On the campus of House of Seven Gables. Very cool. And we have a special guest with us today. That is going to be David Moffat. Hi, David. Hi. What is your uh, role here? I am a visitor services specialist. I do research and interpretation. So I I wear a lot of hats. I do a lot of stuff here, but I've been here for 11 years. I was, uh, so obviously, uh, all you know, we like to interview people around town. And we are doing a whole Emerton Gables uh, Hawthorne thing. And I was like, who do I talk to with the Gables? Because, you know, I can't talk to Caroline Emerton. And uh, several people were like, David's your guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's the one, he's the guy, he knows everything, you want to talk to him, you want to interview him, he's he's the guy. He's so. the, the closest we can get to <laughs> Caroline Emerton? Yeah, I mean, in Salem, you might be able to talk to Caroline Emerton. Oh, well, you find the right. <laughs> we did interview John at the Ouija Board Museum. I was so. going to say, do a little seance, yeah. bring Caroline back. We might not want to do that. <laughs> no, that's, that's a little, maybe a bit gauche, but, well, welcome. So what yeah. got you started here? I, I grew up in Hamilton, so not far from Salem. And then when I graduated college, I came to live in Salem full-time. That was in 2012. And I've always been interested in history and books and literature. And I was living around the corner from here, so I figured this would be a good seasonal job in that fall. And then I've been here ever since. Was it like an instant love? Yeah, I... I'd, really started to get into historic houses while I was in college. It was something I kind of had appreciated a little, but then I really started to get into it. And once I got here, I was like, yeah, this is this is my place. I really like it. Uh, the It's so beautiful here. Like any, every day of the year is a little different, what it looks like on campus, given the weather and the buildings don't change too much, which is nice, but it's sort of a constant changing scenery around this constant backdrop. So we're, did, did I say that right? Hooper Hathaway? Yeah. And I saw the sign coming in, what was it, 1682? Yeah, the sign's wrong. It's 1683. <laughs> okay. But we only found that out about a year ago. So okay. we haven't changed the signs yet. I nope. love that. History is always evolving. Yeah. So what what is this house? So it was built by a cordwainer, so a shoemaker, named Benjamin Hooper in 1683 uh, or thereabouts. And he was living in Salem. His wife, Eleanor, had been an indentured servant from Jersey, like the Isle of Jersey, had come to Salem. And he was not particularly well off, at least by the end of his life, but he built a pretty sizable house, about half the size of the house today. And then it passed through a couple more families. Um, Late 1700s, it was expanded. So the part that we're recording in um, on the north side of the houses from the 1780s. Is this the oldest house that we've recorded I, in? I think so. No, Reds. Six, Reds. Oh, wait, no. Well, well I mean... I, I would disagree with that, but... <laughs> if, if we were in the older section of the house, I'd say it would be the oldest. Okay, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with Reds being from the 1600s. But no? <laughs> I think that that's a little early for the house, but don't tell Reds that. I guess they'll hear this, but... Well, we can, we can edit that. <laughs> yeah. Back. Interesting. So, yeah. There's there's 10 houses in Salem that I consider from the 1600s. And this is sort of right in the middle, like later end of them. So might I ask, did you had you had read The House of Seven Gables before you started working here? I hadn't. I'd read um, Scarlet Letter. As we all yeah. 
and some of his short stories and stuff uh, in college. But House of Seven Gables, I'd, I had it. I had picked it up when I moved to Salem. Like, oh, you know, it's around the corner for me. I should read that. I, th- I think I did the same thing. And at this point, I think it's safe to say you have. I have, yeah. I've read it twice now all the way through, but I'm, I refer to it pretty often, I think. So it's a good book. It's, it's challenging. I hedge sometimes when people ask if they should read it because I've talked to a lot of guests that have not enjoyed it. And then I've also talked to other guests who it's like their favorite book. Some people are like, oh, I've read it 15 times. And it, uh, it's definitely like you love it or you hate it. I have yet to read it, but I'm reading it to prep for next week's episode on Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah, we're, so we're doing a little book report. Nice. Yeah, we'll have to uh, give our ratings yeah. when that comes around. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll make for good conversation probably because like i said it it divides people okay so speaking of visitors to the gables on average how many people do you see on you know daily weekly basis i know that changes of course throughout the year uh, with a high concentration in october but just in general yeah um about one hundred and ten thousand is our annual visitation wow but a third of them come in october so we get about thirty three thousand people in october and then the and probably another third in the summer, and then the other months of the year, it's a lot quieter. Wow! And you're open year round. We are. We close for a couple weeks at the start of the year for maintenance, but we're pretty much open eleven months of the year. That's. I, just, I don't want to say that's more than everyone else, but that's that's pretty good it's, for Salem. Yeah, we're we're always open for the most part. Yeah, except for January, and so. It's tough when people come to me and say, like, what else is open? Because that's constantly changing in Salem. And it's, there's, you know, with COVID, a lot of places have cut back. So that's getting to be a tougher and tougher question to answer some days. Now, one one thing we had said in our last episode when we were talking about uh, Caroline Emerton, it seems like the House of Seven Gables just will never go out of style. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> it seems to, yeah. you know, it, it's a consistent cornerstone of Salem's history. Yeah, and it... It's been that way since, I don't know if I want to say 1851 when the book came out, but definitely since the 1880s, uh, it's been a cornerstone of Salem's tourist economy and its sort of brand as a city. It's been, it was a national icon more so than it is today, about a century ago. Wow. That would put it, you know, in the late 1920s uh, when she was sort of full force in her mission yeah yeah and it like i think of in the 20th century you know as automobiles became more popular like mid 20th century you get the interstates you get a lot more domestic travel Uh, eventually you know airplanes and stuff help augment that too uh pretty much the pattern for most historic sites in the country is like around the 1970s they hit peak visitation because of the bicentennial and all the hype around that so, like, we were seeing about 200,000 people a year in, like, the late 70s, early 80s. Oh, wow. Because of all the, the like, popularity of, like, early American history yeah. and Americana and stuff. And people whinge on, on Salem being a tourist town today. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, Haunted Happenings, you know, started in the early uh, yeah, 80s. So, yeah. like, I think once that wave of, like, Americana started to die down, like, the Haunted Happenings took, to took over. Yeah. yeah. So, I think Salem is a... Town probably gets more visitors than it did, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but it's more concentrated and the Gables probably sees a smaller share 
It's like, I know for every person who comes to the Gables, four go to the Salem Witch Museum. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> that's, um, that's, oh, that's a lot. Well, might yeah. I suggest to everyone listening, come visit the House of Seven Gables. I just came for the first time. I'm so sorry to admit this. And you had said, you know, you hadn't listened to the podcast yet. Yeah. Well, I had not been to the House of Seven Gables yet. You know, you walk by it. I used to live right down on English Street, right oh, around yeah. the corner, Stone's Throw. But, uh, you know, th- for some reason, I just never got to it. And I took the tour about two weeks ago now. And I was like, my goodness, this is what I was missing. It was just fabulous. And I had always heard that your guides were some of the best in town. And if you want a good historic house museum tour, like this is where you want to go. You have to go to the House of Seven Gables. And I had a rough idea of, you know, why it was here, but I really knew just such a small smidgen of the real history. And uh, I was so pleasantly surprised. So you guys do such a good job here. Thank you. Were, were you a tour guide to start? Yeah, and I still do tours from time to time. But my one of my main roles now is training the guides. Ah. So that's something I've been doing. But I, I mainly gave tours from like 2012 through, I want to say 2016 or 17. Do you, do you ever sit in the rooms with the guides and tap your cane? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not my style. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that to Caroline. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite thing about maybe the Gables house and the campus? Yeah, I mean, I love the, the architecture to me. It's just like you can read, once you know what you're looking for, you can read the story of a, a house. And there's so many original parts of the Gables. Um, as a little sort of sneak peek, we're putting together a behind closed doors tour of the house that'll be op- available maybe about every month uh, starting this summer uh, or doing? maybe in the fall. And what do you do in the summer, Sarah? Uh, going to the <laughs> behind the closed doors tour of the Gables. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll be bringing people into some of the spaces that aren't on the tour. Um, a lot of spaces people have never been in before. And so like in one of those spaces, you can see the, brick nogging like fill in the wall and the original siding of the house from 1668 because when they expanded it they closed in the wall and when we did a structures report on it about a decade ago they found you can still see the original like siding boards the clabbards in the wall there which is to me it's like that that's doesn't get better than that okay i mean if if for nothing else that that seems that's, I don't know. Yeah, you're looking at something that people, you know, saw in the 1660s and you know, 1668 to 1677. That was the outside of the house. Yeah, and then it's been covered over ever since. It's just so, wild. So Jeez. completely unchanged. Yeah, we we talk about the the witch trials every day and like the people who lived here and what they were going through and like the winters and the social and the economic and you're like, there's not a lot for people to see and in the city, especially downtown. Yeah. And you know, there's the witch house, but you know, it's like, even still, you know, that's undergone a significant amount of changes over the decades. So to be like, this is something that those people would have actually, in this case, literally had their hands on. Yeah. Is, is incredible. And yeah. what I appreciate about your guys's interpretation is like, you don't shy away from those changes. If anything, that's a part of the story itself is the changes. The house has 
gone through and the campus overall and moving different structures here and just the time through or the changes through the centuries and the different families it uh it really adds to the experience and it's cool that you guys you know I think on tour there was a section where we were able to see it was like behind a a panel you could see the original wall um I think it was in the Gables house and it was just it was it was remarkable and one of my little favorite factoids about that is as far as I can tell, and uh, talking to the person who wrote the biography of the architect who restored our house, Joseph Chandler, he thinks that, that, that Chandler basically came up with that idea of having these viewing windows in historic houses to show the layers. So now, you know, all over the country, you can go and see a historic house and they'd be like, oh, look, there's a, a window here and you can see what the wallpaper looked like, or like you can peek in. But you know, in 1908, nine, when he's restoring the house, that's a new idea that he has to show these layers of the past there. And it caught on. Yeah. Which is cool. Speaking of uh, giving tours, do you have any, you know, outrageous stories that <laughs> stick out, both positive and maybe negative? Yeah. Um, oh boy, I mean, I've had, I've worked through 11, I think, Octobers or 12 Octobers, however the math works on that. So I've, I've seen a lot. <laughs> I've experienced a lot. Um, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff that tourists will do in October in <laughs> Salem. I, I think we'd believe yeah, it. Yeah, you'd probably believe it, yeah. yeah so, are, are you willing to share? Uh, I don't know <laughs> if they would want me to share, but you could, <laughs> you could imagine also, I mean, everything from like incredibly like high levels of inebriation to the point that people oh. can't even stand up and like we have to be like you have to go oh my gosh or, who um, shows up to the house of seven gables drunk I mean, they, they many show people tours. in october believe it or not yeah <laughs> it's one thing to do a night tour and have someone show up drunk because you're like okay fine yeah but to come here that's yeah, i mean I you had, are very close to the tiki boat so i had some ladies set a solo cup of vodka like just straight <laughs> vodka down on the desk at the ticket booth and like they were what? they were already drunk and they were like running to go look at the back window to look at the gardens and they set it down and I was like uh you can't have this here oh my gosh he's just walking around yeah. I mean, that's illegal like yeah it, on so many levels yeah I mean maybe it was hand sanitizer but this was pre-covid so. <laughs> probably not probably not no um but yeah all sorts of you know any anything that would land you in hell in the middle ages people have probably done no short of murder <laughs> at the house of that, seven that we know of yeah <laughs> um and then like i was just thinking the other day probably the you know the the stereotypical question that guides make fun of is every now and then and it's happened to me which i would not have believed it it's only happened to me once uh, a long time ago but before that happened someone had said they'd been asked this was that a guest will look out across Salem Harbor at Marblehead and ask in all seriousness, is that England? Oh my God. I thought you was going to say, is that Canada? No. What? <laughs> well, you're from Michigan. Yeah. So that's, I, I that, was used to looking at Canada yeah. so close, but that is outrageous. Is that- yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, that's why it took him so long to get here. You know, it was <laughs> they had to arduous. swim. Yeah. What? I, I mean, because that's the extreme end. But there are a lot of people who come to Salem and don't even realize that it's on the ocean. Yes. Like if you just visit downtown and don't come down to the Derby Street area mm-hmm. and don't, like, do, you know, we're such such an in- integral part of our history as a support, but you can totally miss that. So the worst question I think I've ever gotten, other than that, 
was about two years ago. Someone came to me in October while I was outside, you know, doing, uh, so helping people uh, get tickets and stuff. And he said to me, where did I park my car? I said, <laughs> where did you park your car? <laughs> like uh, in, in our lot here? And he was like, no, I walked here. And I was like, okay. And we troubleshooted and we found out it was down by Fort Ave by oh my gosh. Winter Island. But I don't know. I mean, I guess I was able to help. So maybe it wasn't a dumb question, but. Well, the good, good on you for helping them. But yeah. that's, where did I park? And it, it wasn't like he was like, where did I park my car? It was not, he was just like, where did I park my car? And I was like, I. <laughs> I would love to see you feel the question like that, Jeffrey. <laughs> I'm sure you'd have a few choice words uh, for that person. I don't know. Like, I, I can be snarky, but face can to face. Can be? Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm helpful-ish. <laughs> wow. It's not all negative, though. So let's say one of my favorite really positive stories was that at some point, I think in the 60s, there was a group of teenagers, young adults coming to visit the Gables. It was like six or seven of them and their car broke down and they were from like the Midwest, I think, or maybe like upstate New York. They were from farther afield. And so their car broke down and they never made it. And then about like 2017, 2018, they all regrouped and came back to finally complete their journey like 50, 60 years? Yeah, like 50, years? 60 years later. Wow. Um, and that was really cool. And then um, one of my favorite, too, like I had a, a guy who taught Hawthorne. He was an English professor at the University of Kampur in India. And so he and I had a really long conversation about Hawthorne in India. And I, I, I thought you stuff. meant for a second that he... I totally thought the same <laughs> thing. Like, t- And then I had to oh, do oh, the t- math. Oh, yeah. I had to do the math in my head. Like, no, he was for sure dead. <laughs> Oh, man, I'd love to talk to Hawthorne's teachers. Probably be like, oh, that kid? And yeah. He was always so grumpy and moody and <laughs> never turned in his work. And Yeah, and then who was uh, uh, like a troublemaker in college at Bowdoin. So. Him and, him and uh, Taft? Pierce. Pierce, yeah. thank you. Oh, Franklin Pierce, right. Yeah, they would smuggle in um, alcohol in their lamp oil bottles. Oh, that's great. And Pierce said that, it was either Pierce or Hawthorne's friend Bridge. One of them said Hawthorne could, he was like a tank. He could just drink more than anyone else and not show any signs of like alcohol. It's a nice skill to have. Yeah. Like I, the 1820s in yeah. Maine. It's probably one of the. It's, it's a good skill. Yeah. Yeah. So do you believe in ghosts or per, spirits? Personally, no. Personally, so, no. Okay. Sorry to disappoint. But Does that mean you've never had any weird? I haven't. And when guests ask me that, that's what I'll say. You know, I've never experienced anything. Our official stance as a museum is, you know, we're not a haunted attraction. Right. Like, of course. We're just an old house. Uh, and I, I'll tell people, like, I've been the only person on this property myself many, many times, like locking up buildings, turning off lights. Like, I've never had any experiences with anything. I've it was one time many years ago where I was up in the attic of one of the houses at night with just a flashlight, like looking at something and nothing has jumped out at me. And I've said that many times and nothing's tried to prove me wrong yet. So <laughs> other people have had experiences, um, you know, they, everything from seeing someone in historical costume out of the corner of their eye as they're going between rooms or, you know, feeling presences, hearing voices, supposedly in the Hawthorne birthplace, you know, the legend is that you hear the sound of rope swinging in the attic. But of course, Hawthorne's great grandfather was involved in the which Charles never actually lived right. in that house. But, you know, maybe there's, or 
the Hawthorne birthplace is supposed to be the more uh, haunted, you know, sort of active building on the campus, if that is what you blew, you know, if that's what you buy into. We'll have to have to check that out. Maybe we can do it our ghost hunting. I was going to say <laughs> seance. <laughs> uh, that's uh, kind of surprising. Um, so we we've been talking before this. We, we have a mutual friend, uh, and he is 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 very uh, apt at, at the his belief in spirits. Yeah. And uh, I think he works at the old man's in Concord. Oh yeah. And he's like, it's the most haunted you come. And I, I I was talking to him. I was like, I have never experience anything he's like we'll go to this one house any day you pick he's like i promise you will see something he's he's very adamant about it which i assume he probably yeah i'm i mean i don't actually know of any specific experiences he had here okay okay. the the most recent like good story i've heard was another guide who worked here uh a woman named terry uh she worked here several years ago she's fantastic tour guide and there was a day that she went to close up the Hawthorne birthplace between tours and she called in and said, you know, is anyone here? And she heard very clearly someone upstairs say yes. And then she looked and there was nobody in the house. So spooky. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'm sort of also of the, of the belief that uh, the paranormal, if it is a a construct of energy, there are people who attract that and people who, Dispel. Dispel that, right? Like, even your magnet, sometimes they just, but if you flip it around and it pushes it away, I distinctly feel as though I push all activity away from me. So maybe you're similar. It it could be. If it's the, if it's like a wavelength, like channel thing, I'm not on the right. Yeah, same. Like, I spent a lot of my life um, growing up in and like visiting and, and spending time in old houses, and I haven't had any experiences yet. It is unfortunate. I get a, as you get that question on tour, we also get that question all the time. You know, have you had any experiences? Have you seen anything? Is this place haunted? You know, what's the most haunted spot in town? And personally, I've had one kind of weird experience, but even that could probably explain it away. But I've wandered these streets at 3 a.m. I've gone up to the cemeteries and yelled and said, come on, (laughs) give me something. Like, I'm waiting for you. Show me anything. And unfortunately, it just hasn't happened yet but then we get visitors all the time that are like oh i feel a heaviness or i think i saw something you never know matrixing who knows yeah yeah my friends and i used to go up to proctor's ledge on june 10th before it became you know now like the monument and everything that it has and was all fenced off and stuff we would climb up on that hill behind walgreens and you know around midnight ish on june 10th where Bridget Bishop was right. executed on the anniversary and that was cool. Sort of like um, legend tripping, you know, like going, but never, never anything cool happened. So I actually had someone on tour once who asked me, you know, similar questions like, and he had claimed to be somewhat sensitive and I shared information about Proctor's ledge. Now this is only about a year ago. So they had the memorial and Next thing you know, maybe a month later, I got a message online and some photos, and he claimed that when he wandered down that way, he saw a red light through the trees, and it was a very trippy experience, according to him, and he sent me these photos, and I I was already like, this guy seems a little <laughs> off, but yeah. Huh? If I lived up there, like, <laughs> keep a little red flashlight, take my dog out for a walk, and just like... Oh my <laughs> gosh, mess with people. Well, yeah. Uh, 
someone we know used to hide in Howard Street <laughs> and and mess with people. So you you never know. Yeah, you never know. But Howard Street's a spook. That's probably the spookiest graveyard in Salem. It's yeah, yeah. Although, have you been? Uh, behind St. Mary's in the marsh there where all the old um, yes, granite yes. is. So yes. that's that's a cool little I, spot. Sarah thought I was trying to kill her, to be fair. <laughs> I couldn't figure out, because um, our friend Mike Vitka, yeah. he was the one that shared the information with us, although he was very vague in his explanation. So there we are wandering around the back of St. Mary's, and he says, no, I think it's right here. He's pulling it up on the satellite view of maps, and I'm like, that does not look like a graveyard. And he's like, no, I think this is it. It's like, oh, it's here for the woods, and she's like, uh. I'm not sure about this. But then it ended up being, we we made it, obviously, and it was so cool. Yeah. What I like about it is you can stand there and you see Salem, Danvers, Peabody, mm-hmm. and Beverly, I think, in that little, like, cove there. You're, like, at that little intersection between all the towns. I like the the that cove because that's a historically accurate view of what a lot of this land sort of would have looked like centuries ago. We don't, we don't get a lot of that natural, you know, inlet harbor area, which would have dotted, like, that whole landscape back in the day. Yeah, exactly. There's um, a photograph of George Jacobs' farm, like his farmland as it looked in the late 19th century, like right sort of in that area. And it's just clear fields down to the water, no development. Like now that's like where the bowling alley and like those houses behind there are. Uh But just seeing, you know, what this whole area used to look like is is really cool. I was going to say, it's a shame that's changed so much, but then again, that's the, uh, that's progress, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So we've got this house, the, uh, I'm pointing, not that anyone can see Nathaniel. that. Hawthorne Birthplace. Yep. Hawthorne Birthplace. And then. It's the little counting house. Yes. From the 1830 is the date we put on it, but it's sort of mid 19th century. Okay. Is it, is it not, do you not know, or is it? It's a bit of a mystery. Okay. Um, we know that the last owner of the house before Caroline Emerton, the Upton family, right. they used it as a garden shed. And it seems like it was here before that on some of the um, Atlas maps and things. But it's, you know, maybe it was a counting house. Maybe it was a workshop. It's a bit ambiguous. It, it was on our site. They moved it from where the main garden is to by the water. About 1940, I think. So how, how do you date a building? Yeah. A, a, a other than like... Having the records. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my other jobs is I, I do house histories for Historic Salem. So the little house-shaped plaques yeah, yeah. you see on people's houses that'll say the date. To get one of those, you have to have a historian come up with a little report about the date of your house. And so the... Basic method is there's a lot of public records. So all the deeds going back to the mid-1600s survive and have been digitized by the Registry of Deeds. And so you can kind of investigate and hop back through deeds to figure out. And that's often the smoking gun because the deed will say, you know, and the closer you can get them together, the even more sort of um, the better you can prove that. But so say somebody sells a lot of land in 
1760, and it just says, you know, a piece of land or a plot of land in Salem. Three years later, the guy who buys it turns around and sells it, and it's called a, a messuage, so like a piece of land with a house on it, or it says, uh, you know, the land in Salem with the dwelling house thereon. Or, and so you can say, okay, so between when he bought that and sold it, a house was built there. Or, you know, if you're talking 1800s, you got directories that list who lived in different houses starting in 1837. You got censuses every 10 years. Um, starting, you know, in the early 1800s, they start to give you a little more information. And then um, the coolest way, uh, like once you're getting back into the 1600s, is to do dendrochronology, which so dendro, tree, chronology, time, like it's a scientific study where you take a sample of a beam, which is how we dated. So this house had always historically been 1682. We dated the posts in it and it came back 1683 which there's like a two-year margin of error because of the growth rings but basically a tree will grow at different rates you know like a pine tree in this region scientists have looked and seen that all the pine trees grow at the same rate depending on how cold or wet a year is and so it creates like a barcode of how far apart the rings are in the tree and so if you could use a computer, you can scan that and place it. If you have the outer ring of growth, like you can say, okay, so this tree started growing. The oldest in the gables is an oak tree that started growing in 1485. Oh, wow. And then it was cut down, you know, 1667, 68 wow. to build the house. And so in the 19th century, there was some controversy. Like at one point I thought maybe it was 1662, 67. In 2008, when they did the dendrochronological uh, study. They were trying to figure out if the widow Ann Moore, who had lived on this site and sold the property to John Turner, if any of her house was incorporated into John Turner's, um, which I think, and a lot of other people think, it was actually on the other side of Turner Street, her old house, okay. and that it stood for a while after the gables had been built before it was torn down. But So it turned out, you know, None of that was incorporated into the House of the Seven Gables. But it wow. was Oxford Lab from England that came and did it. So it's basically around here, historic Deerfield and Oxford are the only people who date the houses like that. 1485? Yeah. I can't. That's so cool. And so they, to start the samples, they use church buildings because they're so well dated. You know, at churches, there's so much right. record, record and data. Yeah. And, so you can look at, you know, the meeting house in Hingham or the Old North Church in Boston and say, okay, well, we know that these beams were cut down in this year and use that as a benchmark to start to put these samples together. That's so cool. That's a really cool job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I've thought for a while I kind of want to get into that at some point. Yeah, it's like combining botany and history. Right? Yeah. So there's like a, a small fraction of the houses that have survived from the 1600s have had that dating done. But a good number of them in Salem have. Like the Pickering House, yep. the Narbonne, um, a lot of the Pems houses, they've all had that dating done. The Pickering House has that is it white oak. I think so. Am I getting, there's, there's the beam in yeah. that, that main room. 
And I remember going in, and I, I can't remember. He's like, oh, this was one of the original oak beams. And it's just exposed. He's like, I was like, can I touch it? And he's like, yeah. I'm just like, I'm like, that's, <laughs> like, I feel like I'm breaking some rule, right? And he's like, no, it's fine. I'm like, and I guess the tree doesn't even grow around here anymore because it was such a good kind of oak that they yeah. harvested all of it. Um, yeah. yeah. The yeah. white oak, because the yeah. English have been building with oak for centuries but when they came to new england it's a lot hardier and larger tree than the english oak and so they were really excited about it and it doesn't bow so you see a lot of uh you know like a room like the one right now says 12 15 feet in the center if there's an oak beam it'll start to it'll still structurally hold but the the white oak just remains because of of its its structural integrity and so most of the houses around here from that period were built with oak yeah the john ward house is an exception because it was built with pine framing. Okay. Mm. Which is know, unusual. It's softer wood and pine makes up a lot of the boards and stuff, but not the skeleton of the house? No, the skeleton of the house is pine. Is, no, no, but not normally. Not normally. Right, right. Yeah. So while I was doing research for the Caroline Emerton episode, and this sometimes happens, and I jump at the opportunity. I came across a book that was uh, being sold online, just through like a thrift bookstore, and it says the chron- it's called the Chronicles of Three Old Houses by Caroline Emerton. And I happen to see you have a copy in the front uh, lobby area, and on the inside there's this encryption that says Hathaway House, yeah, which is funny because that's where we are right now. House of Seven Gables, August twenty fourth. 1935 so what can you tell us about this book here yeah that's really awesome because that is one of the first editions of that book so it (laughs) came out in 1935 has there only been one edition so we have done a lot of printings of it so like right now in our shop we sell these little red covered like Mm -hmm. paper cover versions of it um but it's the same text as the original edition gotcha but that was so caroline emerton starting um we have her drafts in our archives like for about 25 years starting around 1910 when she opened the museum she started to put together a history of it and so it's her account of saving the house of the seven gables saving the hathaway house and saving our shop which is in the beckett house from we now know the 1680s. Um, the signs still say 1650s, but 1687 is what the Beckett House came back as. And so she is a really good writer. She takes you through all the sort of the stories of how she did the detective work, worked with Chandler to find um, what evidence they could about the house's original appearance and tried to incorporate that and how they moved the other houses to the site. And it's a really interesting little book. I'm excited. I haven't opened it just yet. I did a little skimming uh, because it came in after we recorded the episode, but I was just so excited that I hadn't seen anything else written by her. So, Yeah, that's the only book that she wrote. We have a lot of essays and things that she wrote in our collections, but it was just the Chronicle of Three Old Houses. And in the 30s, when that inscription was done, this house was used as a bed and breakfast on the site. So people actually stayed. It was part of the settlement house for educational programming, but then the upper rooms um, 
we're mostly at that point used as bed and breakfast spaces. Like this one? Yeah. That so this been. was this was one of the settlement classrooms, but then I think by that point, by the 30s, it had become like a, a guest room. That would be pretty cool. I was going to say, it's very reminiscent of like today's Airbnb market, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there was another, um, where our parking lot is on Hardy Street next to the Fippen House, which is a staff house, like the yellow one there is a parking lot for staff parking. And that used to be a bed and breakfast in the sixties until it burned down. Now, does anyone stay on the property full time? Like as a caretaker? Yeah, we have a groundskeeper caretaker who's here. He's got some big dogs. So if you're listening and thinking about (laughs) (laughs) sneaking out of the property, don't do that. That's a cool job. Yeah. What if that's like the, the caretaker at the, at the, uh, Harmony Grove. No, no, no. Because that's also a cool job. Yeah, there's some, like, and there's... Ropes Mansion. Or Mac Park, Yeah, I was going to say Mac Park, too. Your your imaginary friend. Yeah, oh, Ropes Mansion. (laughs) And then um, the Purse Nichols house, someone was living in there for a time. Yeah, Yeah. Dave Dave Goss, who you're familiar with, was living in the the Purse Nichols for a while. So Mac Park, did did they find anyone to live in there, do you know? I don't know. It looks like it's getting fixed up. Okay, okay. So I think... I mean, I'll live there. (laughs) Have you seen it? Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. The kind of creepy house yeah. on a hill yeah. situation. Definitely. Yeah. I would I be a great opportunity, you know, live in a historic home. And take care of the garden. You have to take care of the, the garden there, right? That's the the, the stipulation. The I catch. Think. Yeah. I think you yeah. have to do the, the fixing of the house. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So what do you think of, uh, okay, so. We talked about the Gables, right? Mm-hmm. In, in the last episode, we talked about Caroline Emerton and how the Gables today is a fabrication or a reproduction of what Hawthorne wrote the Gables was. So, like, they've restored it, but it's also based on this. Lit- what is your take? Yeah. The, the, the hot take on, on that. Yeah, I have a coworker, um, Everett Philbrook, who's worked in historic houses for a long time, has worked here for a long time. And he puts it best when he says, the way that the House of the Seven Gables looks today was as it never looked at any point in its history. You know, we are looking at a creation of 1909, 1910 that, you know, at this point is historic in its own right. That whole period of preservation and colonial revival. You know, now we're looking century on back at that. And so what you have is a very original, well-preserved house from the 1600s that's still there under very well-preserved layers from the 1700s and some additions and changes from the 1800s that then in the early 1900s, they go and they redo the exterior, they rebuild the back wing, they take out some windows, they, uh, you know, make some, they add a garden porch they do a lot of changes to try and bring the house in line with on the outside more how it looked in the 1600s as caroline emerton imagined it and you know discovered with chandler as they were doing research on the house and then the interior was designed to try and look as it would have in the 1800s when hawthorne would be seeing it and visiting his cousin there I, I had heard people describe taking a tour at the House of Seven Gables to be like walking through three centuries of architecture in one building. And I didn't even realize that the outside, you know, 
very much looks like from the 1600s. But then we were surrounded by wallpaper that would have been there in the 1800s. And I didn't even think about it. But, you know, I think that speaks to the guide and just the way that the narrative is presented because you do go through these changes through the centuries and you don't shy away from it. It's part of the story of the house overall. Yeah. It's so unique. Like, unlike any other historic home I've ever been in. Well, thank you. I like to think of it as a, like a palimpsest, like those old parchments or vellum where it was very expensive. People would write one way on it and then flip it around and write in the other direction, like perpendicular. And so sometimes you'd end up, you know, like in archives, they have these historic documents that'll have three, four different people writing on it in different time periods, erasing what's underneath them or just writing over it. And you can see all those layers, like the, the history written on top of history. And I, I think of the Gables that way. That's a, such a cool comparison. Do you have a, a favorite thing about the the actual Gables building? That's Other that's than the tough. staircase, we'll talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the light in some of the rooms, like in the great chamber on the second floor. It's got these big windows, which are about the size they were in the 1600s still. And you think about what most houses would have been like with very tiny, often glassless windows. And you think about the grandeur of what the Turner's house looked like. And in the 1700s, we have the inventories of what kind of goods and things they had in the house. And so in the room below, I like to try and imagine it as it looked in the 1740s, where it had all black walnut furniture, which was the like in vogue furniture of the early 1700s. So the dark wood and then lots of blue and white porcelain candles and mirrors. So I'm just imagining, you know, like this room where you walk in and it's the sunlight's coming in, but the room itself is pretty dark. And the only color is like this white and blue Chinese porcelain cups and saucers and vases and things. I feel like I need to redecorate now. That sounds... (laughs) That sounds pretty cool. So that's your favorite thing about the house itself, moving outwards into Salem. What would you say your favorite thing is about this town? Yeah, I mean, I I can't say enough about Salem. I love this city. It's got all sorts of things to recommend it. I mean, one of the things I love about Salem, I don't have a dog currently, but there's so many dogs in Salem. I feel like compared to any other like town or city of this size, I see so many dogs on a daily basis. I walk around a lot. Like one of my favorite things to do is just walk around town and look at old houses, look at, you know, the flowers or whatever's going on. Same. The weather and you see so many cute dogs. But um, also, like I think of it, Salem's got such a great cross section of architecture. Like when you're looking at old houses, I think like if you want to see first period houses from the 1600s, you can go to Ipswich or Marblehead, and they've got way more than Salem. If you want to see Georgian houses, you can go you know, somewhere like Newport or Portsmouth. If you want to see some federal houses, like Newburyport's a great place for that. Victorian, maybe like Portland. But if you want to see all of them, come to Salem. <laughs> if you want to see amazing, like canonical examples of each of those styles, come walk around Salem. I think we talked a little bit about that in our episodes on McIntyre. Yeah. Uh, the fact that, you know, as much as we appreciate the architecture right now during the late 1800s, early 1900s, and especially when preservation starts becoming such a big thing, 
people did recognize, maybe even more so back then, that Salem has such a concentration of significant architecture for the country, uh, whether it's first period or all the way up into colonial revival. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Do, do you have a favorite uh, other? So it may, it, it, is the Gables your favorite building in Salem or do you have a? I should, I should say yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think it, it would be unfair to it to say it wasn't. But I mean, I love so many. I love the Joshua Ward House, like okay. the Merchant Hotel. The Purse Nichols is fantastic. Um, the Gedney House, which is one of historic New England houses. Uh, that's always this, this the one that's like squirreled away. Yeah. It's a really small one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's on High Street. Um, what's cool about that is they were demolishing it in the 1960s and turning it into tenements when um, this woman, Libby Reardon, discovered that it was a first period house from the 1600s because she saw the paneling out for the trash. And she was taking a class with Abbott Lowell Cummings, who's sort of the, he is the, like, shepherd of first period house history and architecture. He really, uh, he was the, the president of Historic New England for many years. He wrote the sort of Bible, a book called Framed Houses of Massachusetts Bay, about that architecture. He trained a lot of the people who are doing that work today, like a lot of the people working in preservation in this area. And he was her professor. And the story goes that they tell there is that he told there if there was another first period house in Salem that he didn't know about, he'd eat his hat. And <laughs> maybe he was right. And then she's also the same person who uncovered that the Pickman house was a first period house, the one at the cemetery. That's cool. I feel like that story is a little bit more well known. Yeah. It well, is that a bit... also like looks like a first period house. Yeah. Right. It's also... Well, it didn't at the time. It had right, a Gambrel right. roof on it. Yeah. Yeah, it looked like a Victorian or house, Or mansard right? roof, yeah, not Gambrel, mansard. I, I don't know if any of our listeners would know. <laughs> <laughs> Got to set the record straight. I mean, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. well, I, don't, I don't even know what the difference is, so. Uh, mansard, so Gambrel is like your Amityville horror house. Like, okay. It's your barn shape. Like, if you think of like a Fisher-Price barn, like, yeah. that's like Gambrel. So it's like a gable, but it's got like slanted sides so you've got more space in the attic your mansard has slopes on all sides so it's your um like french empire style like if you picture like versailles those are okay. mansard roofs vampire weekend wrote a song about it fascinating so uh what what is a gable yeah it's the, <laughs> right the, the triangle mean... <laughs> so it's the steep peak of the roof you know it's where the roof comes to a 90-degree angle with a triangular sort of pediment uh, facade piece to it. And just to clarify from our last episode, how many gables would have been in existence when Hawthorne came to visit? Three. Three. So and it had lost we, four of them. We said three or four. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, I mean, you'll read about it in Chronicles of Three Old Houses, but there was controversy in Caroline Emerton's day, whether there was ever an eighth gable. And oh, the uh, house of eight gables. Yeah, it's it not nearly the same cool. ring. No, it no. does not. No, although for many years there was someone around here who had a Wi-Fi that was the eighth gable that you could <laughs> find when you search for a Wi-Fi. Okay, that's, that's so great. Yeah. The, the, the eighth gable is in the room with the secret staircase. 
Can we can we say that? Hidden. That- yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's the the dormer. Like on our tour, we have to we tell people, you know, like and don't count that one. That's a dormer. And so they when Chandler and Emerton were looking at the house, they were looking at the structure and figured out, okay, this was probably, you know, there was some kind of a peak here, but it probably wasn't up to the roof line. And so, you know, it's sort of a semi gable, but you got to keep it in line with Hawthorne's name for the story. So is, does a gable have to have a window? Am I making that up? No, it doesn't have to. I don't think really there's any. Okay. Okay. I, I don't, I don't know where. Yeah. And the thing is, I like, was like just in the back of my head. I was like, I don't think that's real. But. And there's no, like, as far as I know, no, like, architectural body out there, like, making a definition. Like, this is, like, the authoritative definition of what a gable is. There are definitions out there and some, you know, like, the there's um, Wiktionary, which is, like, the Wikipedia dictionary. Mm-hmm. Their page for a gable shows the House of the Seven Gables well, I mean. and <laughs> says... You know, a house with four gables visible, but one of them is the garden porch that we don't count as a gable. So, you know, their dictionary is... A little Disagrees off, with us. Slightly. Yeah. Huh. I, I had a, a, a question that I... It's, it's ridiculous, but here we go. Um, when doing research for, for Caroline Emerton and the Turner Ingersoll mansion the names of the Turner family jumped out at me. <laughs> She's Sarah. This is so silly. It is very silly, but I'm, I'm, I, I need to ask someone. John Turner and Elizabeth Turner. Do you think there is any way that the writers for uh, Pirates of the Caribbean... I, I knew where this was going. <laughs> <laughs> ...took inspiration? What? It's... No, I, so you're not the first person by far to ask this question. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Huh. So, I mean, I'd put that under the, the umbrella of ridiculous questions I mean, from guests. sure, but I saw I it. I don't think there's a connection. Okay. Because, like, Turner is one of the most common English names. Right. It's a job. You know, you're a, a Turner if you make the legs of furniture. Oh, uh, okay. And so it's like Smith. Uh, so there's a ton of Turners walking around New England at that time. And still today, many who don't have any connection to our family, we don't know specifically where the Turners came from in England. There's actually not really a good record of them before they're in Boston in the 1630s. But um, it seems like they're not really too connected with other Turners. They actually had a branch. John Turner's cousin lived in Barbados. So that was part of their merchant trade. But other than that, we don't really know much about the wider Turner family that they came from. So Jonathan, William, and Elizabeth, all very common names. Yeah, Turner, that's what I was thinking. It was like common Elizabeth, Will, very, I, very common. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So I've got a question. If you could be a fly on the wall at any point in this house's history, when would you choose? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would love to see it in the late 1600s. You know, maybe not the witch trials, but probably a little before maybe near the end of the life of John Turner the first he died in 1680 and so John and Elizabeth are living there they've got John Turner the second who inherits the house it would be fairly young um, but it would be interesting to see you know what it looked like in its splendor because John Turner the first was the richest man in Essex County 
in the 1600s. Not just Salem, but the whole county. The whole county. And so he was fantastically wealthy. Uh, and John Turner II also, you know, it, on a different scale from my, most people in Salem or in Massachusetts in the 1700s. But John Turner I, like, I can't imagine how, I mean, to us today it would probably not be terribly impressive, but I think once you start to get into the headspace of what you know life was like in the 1600s, to see the property would be, would be really fascinating. I mean, it, it's it's interesting to see the the, the buildings that we still have, yeah. uh, and we talk about mostly in context of the, of the trials. So we have something like the witch house, or the Rebecca Nurse house, or the House Seven Gables house that were here, and I'm like, but these are not really accurate representations of what the significant majority of the buildings people were living in. And when uh, we went to the Nurse house, I'm like, oh none of this bit was here mm-hmm. and it was just this bit or you see the footprint of of the the paris parsonage and you're like it might have been <laughs> yeah. you live this big and then you see something like the witch house or the house of seven gables and you're like well, that's like five times the size yeah. it's enormous we have mostly wealthy people's houses left yeah because they were well enough built and large enough to be adapted whereas most people's shacks would get torn down once the property was sold or a kid had made enough money that they yeah. tore down their parents' house and built something more comfortable. Or you look, you look at, um, I'm looking at it. If I could see a mile across the water, Pioneer village. Yeah. And then you're like, so some people are living like In that. that yeah. And then and some people are living like that. And you're like, Oh, and even the big house at Pioneer village is the governor's house. Like that's supposed to represent what the governor was living in yeah. at the time. And granted, this is, you know, 40 years later. Yeah. But, but I, that's ridiculous. I say that, you know, most people were still living like the houses at Pioneer Village or like Plymouth like, Plantation. Like a one room, two room. Yeah. Yeah. Not seven gables. They didn't have gables, much less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, how many rooms are in the house of seven gables? 14. 14. Today. Wow. 14. You go from like a one or two room. To four, yeah, that, that's yeah. a... Yeah, and you're talking wealthy people have four or five rooms. I mean, so the Hathaway house was, when it was built, it had two or three rooms. And that was still, you know, it was nice enough that it survived to today. It's kind of a, it's like a catch-22, because the houses that were really, really well-preserved and original by the mid-1800s were no longer, like, they were really run down, and so most of those were lost. Like in Salem, there was a house called the Lewis Hunt House that stood where um, Melt's ice cream is Mm. on Washington Street. And there's some great photographs of it. And there was a similar one in Boston called the Old Feather Store. And both of those were torn down in the 1860s. But so like any house that kept its original diamond, like paint windows from the 1600s, it was doomed because it was so original, but nobody wanted it, you know, no one wanted to live in a house like that in the 1860s. And they weren't, you know, talking historic preservation necessarily at that point? No, it sort of started right around that time, partly because of the loss of buildings like that. It's like reactionary. You yeah, see, you, we're you, losing you all of this. Some buildings, and then all of a sudden people are like, whoa, wait, hold on. Yeah. yeah. The big yeah. one was John Hancock's house yes. in Boston, and the province house. So they lost some, some really good ones. And then they were going to lose the old state house and the old North Church. So they 
banded together in that sort of Imagine creative Imagine in the old one. state house. Uh, like, I, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no. It doesn't even, like, the, I can't even. Well, yeah, and because nowadays, too, we think of it from, like, a tourism perspective and a, like, civic identity. I mean, like, what would Boston be without the old state house and the old North Church? Yeah. And, like, it would just be, you know, it would be a lot sparser and less interesting culturally. So, but yeah. I don't think that they didn't think like that yet. Definitely. It's William Bentley from Salem, the diarist who. Oh, the, the Reverend? Yeah. Oh. So Reverend, yeah. Reverend Bentley, he kept a diary from the 1780s into the you know, 1819 when he passed away. And Abbott Lowell Cummings, that historian I was talking about, looks at him as the first sort of preservationist minded American Looks at Bentley, Bentley as such. As, yeah. Oh. And then followed by Henry David Thoreau in like the 1840s and 50s. But like they're the precursors that like Bentley is writing. Like he writes about the Ingersoll family living in the Gables, taking off some of the parts of the house and like because he's interested in the old Turner house and like he writes that down. And so a lot of what we know about the old houses of Salem comes from Bentley. But what's cool is he's got that you know, really forward thinking that he's like the only guy around who's interested in all this stuff and starts to write it down. I didn't even realize. I, now yeah. I'm going to have to dive back <laughs> into his diary and, yeah. and seek out these entries because he's come up several times. You know, he's just one of those characters that we now recognize in Salem history. He's got connections to all these different things like Leslie's Retreat and the elephant. I believe he wrote about the elephant yep. as yes, well. He did. And yeah. he, he went and toured the Philip English house before it was torn down so he wrote in his diary about visiting the philip english house and walking around in it and so i mean it's so it's Chuck turner stuff. was richer than english yes so i my belief is that philip english is the richest man in salem at the time of the witch trials right because the witch trials happen when john turner the second is 21 he's just reached majority his stepfather has just died his stepfather racked up a lot of debts and so if John Turner the first had lived, he would have been the richest man in okay. Salem. There's I I don't doubt that if John Turner the first had lived, he would have been one of the judges on the Salem Witch Trials. Oh. Or if John Turner the second had been a little older. Because he became a judge in seventeen sixteen, I think. But, you know, if the timing had been a little different, the Turners one of the Turners probably would have been a judge interesting and then we would have had the home of one yeah. of the judges that but like so like uh, the east meeting house which was later bentley's meeting house that's like on bentley it was once on bentley street in this part of salem there's a pew listing that i found it's been digitized like all the records from the church through the congregational library and in like the 1720s john turner the second has pew number one in the east meeting house and then the Browns, who are their in-laws, I think have pew number two. And then Philip English Jr. has pew number three. So the Englishes have a lot of money, but the Turners and the Browns, at least by the early 1700s, have surpassed them. Well, I mean, you know, if someone hadn't taken a yeah. bunch of Englishes, stop. <laughs> yeah, that uh, may have been a little different. <laughs> That's true. So there are a couple questions that we like to ask all of our guests. Yeah. Um First thing, where is your, per well, do you drink coffee? I do. Where's your preferred spot? I, I like Wolf Next Door. 
It is very conveniently very located. Convenient. They make <laughs> a very good cup of coffee. And and they just got indoor seating. Yes, indoor seating is back like, there, and it's 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 really cute the the way they've arranged it and stuff. So it it looks nice. So that's my I, and I love all the coffee shops of Salem for the most part. I, I do when I'm down here. I, I always try to make a point to go to Wolf Next Door because I don't. It's a little bit off the beaten path. For it us. is yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you talk about a lot on the podcast, but what are your favorite spots? Are you allowed to endorse? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's fine at this point. I mean, I feel like I could name yours. Probably. Odd Meter. Yeah. Okay, Odd Meter's great. Yeah. They have a lot of cool stuff there. Yeah, and I always love the vibe in there of the staff. And they're always, I mean, to be fair, the staff pretty much at any, anywhere you go in Salem is great, but they're always uh, warm and welcoming. Have you gotten the Kyoto drip? Yes, which they they haven't done in, in a while. I think it, it broke or it something. Yeah, I have when I was uh, every time I've been there, they haven't had it. So. Yeah, it's one of my favorites, and like the best way I can sort of describe it is like if you like whiskey, it's like coffee. If you nice. like whiskey, like a whiskey level. Yeah, it's yeah, gotta, it's got to be one of those things. Like um, at the cheese shop, there's the Black Betty cheese from the Netherlands, which is really like buttery and rich, and it only comes in one time a year. So I know there are a lot of Salemites who are like. Always going to the cheese shop. Like, when's the Black Betty coming in? Oh, I think it's like in the fall. So uh, the Kyoto drip will be like that for probably. Yeah, like, when oh, it was so be? good. Yeah, I just like and it's like a small cup. It's not even like a big. It's like a ten ounce, and then there's ice. So it's like a lot of ice and a lot of like very good coffee. You know, like it, like you're drinking whiskey. Like I'm just gonna sip this. Nice. Yeah. So I am a very basic person when it comes to coffee. I just like regular. Hot coffee, unless we hit like 95 degrees, then I'll jump to ice. Mm -hmm. And then it's just cream sugar and a little bit of coconut flavoring. It's usually my go-to. I can get that anywhere. So I I definitely hop around quite a bit. Red line tends to be like in my path. path. And then I just went to Lulu's this morning on Derby Street. And that was great. That was good coffee. So I... Being in Salem, <laughs> we are heavily caffeinated. Yeah, so great pastries and stuff. Also, uh, like Redline, the almond croissants there are oh, really good. Have I ma- ever told you when I, a tourist asked me where the best place to get coffee was? What did you say? My did, house. Oh gosh! <laughs> did it you was, invite him over? No, it was an accident, and I just got like one of those new fancy. I can't remember what they're called with like the hot steam and the. The thing, and I, I like to get like expensive coffee grounds, and you know, you I, drink out of a Keurig now, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I've gotten super. I was gonna lazy. say, I've had coffee at your house, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. okay. I used to be super like, oh, right, I've gotten very lazy with it, but it was just like a knee jerk response because, like, they're like, oh, where's the best place to get coffee? And I don't know, I was just feeling snarky, and I was like, my house, <laughs> and then I realized I was like, no, that's not, I didn't mean, I just, yeah, I was just. <laughs> oh goodness now what this makes me think though is like one of my favorite things about salem um like salem definitely needs a grocery store downtown but the nice side of things is it feels sort of european that like you if you want really good bread you can go to aj, AJ king. king and if you want good cheese you go to the cheese shop and if you want good coffee you go to any of the coffee shops like odd meter like there's you know it's like there's specific places you can go for really well done like artisanal goods like rather than just like you can go to the market basket and load up where you could spend a billion dollars and get really good quality stuff and you can walk to all those places too so and then well a farmer's market start in a couple weeks i'm so excited the the june 8th and then i'll put in a play i work i volunteer at the mac park farm 
So and that's open yeah. for anyone who wants to volunteer Saturdays, like April through October in the nine to noon. People are welcome to come and help out. But we are growing produce right here in Salem, a lot of which goes to the Salem pantry. But we also do free I was farmers say, markets. That is free, right? Yeah. Yeah. So people can like it. They advertise on the the Mac Park Farm like Facebook page and stuff like that. Like every few weeks in the summer they'll do like you can come in if we've got eggplants that we've grown or thyme or whatever we have in stock you can come and get a sampling of them and it's uh you know produce grown right here in the city i feel it's very community oriented which is what i like about it you know it's it feels like a chance to sort of um get you know in touch with the earth a little bit and do some actual like manual work and but also to to help the community and, and be a part of that local level, which is cool. Yeah, it feels good to get your hands dirty. Yeah. So, as we uh, ask all of our guests, and as we are in Salem, um, do you have a favorite witch or wizard? And that can yeah. be real, uh, practicing Wiccan, a, a, a pop culture, and, and anything. Yeah, I'm going to go with the most pretentious answer you've probably ever gotten, <laughs> which is the that foul witch sicker acts, which is a, like a, a line in the tempest. So Caliban's mother is a Libyan witch who gets turned into a tree by Prospero in the tempest. But when I, when you asked that, that was the first thing that came to mind. Okay. Interesting. I don't, I don't think we've ever got, <laughs> no, such a specific answer before. We haven't even, no one's even mentioned that the witches in, uh, in Macbeth. Yeah. 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 I don't think this counts as a theater. I think we can say that. I was, I yeah. was, I wasn't going to say it, but okay, yeah. you, you, you went ahead and said it. Yeah. So good. they're fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Should bleep that bit out. Just, just have it, just so he doesn't actually say it. But yeah, um, yeah I don't think so. That might be the first Shakespearean. Maybe? Yeah. yeah. The yeah. witches in Macbeth are also a great choice, and that's that's probably a more legitimate choice. <laughs> but Sycorax, I love yeah. it. I like to imagine more, like she's only mentioned, I think, in one line in the play, but. I like to imagine what she might have been like and what all of the sort of lore that might be there. I feel like there would sh- it would make for a good like film or novel or someone wanted to like Take explore that. that. Like a little thing. side story. Yeah. yeah. And expanding on that. I was I was wondering if, if you were gonna say uh, Samantha. Oh um, yeah. as as she has been Yeah. Oh how cliche. Well I mean you could be if you love the House of Seven Gables, you could be like, Well, you know, she's been here and you know yeah, yeah, she has been inside the physical building, right? Well, so in the show, they shot the exteriors at the Gables, and then the interior is like a soundstage. Ah, Jeffrey! No! Oh, I hate that so much. Because yeah. when I told him that I came to see the Gables for the first time, he's like, wait, did you check out, did you look for the bed warmer? Yeah, yeah. And I totally had forgotten. But now it makes sense because it does look a little different. Yeah, And we have a lot of bed warmers, but none of them... Are the prop from the show. I feel like you should get your hands on that. Yeah, I don't know what happened to it. You know, the, the 1940 House of the Seven Gables movie with Vincent Price, that house is now part of just like a suburban neighborhood in Los Angeles. And you can see that it still kind of looks like the House of the Seven Gables, but they've put like aluminum siding and stuff on or like vinyl siding. It's very just... That, that's um, kind of cool. Yeah. 
I had seen actually, uh, uh, just randomly in the research, we've talked a lot about McIntyre's summer houses and someone was so inspired by the one in, uh, what's the gardens that are in Danvers? Uh, Glen Magna. Glen Magna. So that two-story summer house there, someone was so inspired by the architecture and the style of it, they modeled their entire house after it. It's like a big, you know, well-sized, normal-sized house, and it looks like just a super version of the summer house. It's really, really cool. That's cool. One of my coworkers just showed me right now in Indiana, there's a house for sale on, you know, if you look at like Zillow or Redfin, it was built in 1992, but it looks like a large first period house oh it's like about five thousand square feet it doesn't look quite like the gables but it's it's only got gables on the side so it looks a little more um boxy but it's it's really well done and it looks like they have a lot of possibly genuine 17th century antiques inside it so that's interesting for people all over the country have you know. Like I was inspired. If you got the money and you're inspired, people do all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of wild for Indiana. Yeah, we get a lot of requests. Um, you know, I was talking to someone a couple months ago that wanted to make a replica, like wanted to make his house a replica of the House of the Seven Gables, like a full size. Yeah. So we have a couple measured drawings and stuff. We don't have like full blueprints or measured. Well, there's drawings like of the I house. think I know of at least two or three i think three replicas of the witch house yeah so why not yeah yeah they built a, a replica in chicago in the 1930s for the world's fair like a one-to-one scale replica of the gables and a lot of those houses have now turned up in indiana but the gables one i don't know what ever happened to it hmm. interesting So as we begin to wrap things up, do you have any final advice to give to our listeners? And this can be uh, anything from visiting Salem advice to just general life advice. Yeah. Um, Well, I can talk more about visiting Salem because I definitely know that a little better than life probably (laughs) in a general way. But, um, you know, don't come in October. That's the (laughs) number one recommendation. Like late September to early November, just don't even consider it. They, you know, it's a beautiful time of year to visit a lot of other towns in New England. Um, but, you know, early summer, late spring, like April, May, June is a fantastic time to come visit Salem. Uh, if you come in like November, December, some stuff is closed after the season, but there's, you know, some Christmas stuff like seasonal, really nice atmosphere in, in town. But yeah, don't avoid, avoid that, like creepingly long month that seems to grow like september and no like october whatever the neologisms of like expanding october but then um you know walk around i think a lot of people they'll come in the park and they'll go a couple places but as we were saying like one of the big pleasures of salem is it's a super walkable city and you can wander down any side street it's a very safe city you can wander down any side street anywhere in town and see really interesting houses and like the histories are right on the plaques there. You can say, oh, wow, this house is from then. And like, oh, it was built by someone who was, a, you know, a leather worker and you know, probably in the mills and, you know, look over here and like, oh, there's a hidden little park I didn't even know was down this street. Like, it's a really cool to just sort of let yourself wander around. 
We always try to push people to get off of the pedestrian walkway because there is just so much more to see. That's all I got. Anything? Oh, we can talk about the staircase. Should we talk about the staircase? Yeah, I mean, I could, I could tell you a little bit. Which give, is, give, give me something about the staircase. Yeah, so the secret staircase, as it's called, was put in by Caroline Emerton and Joseph Chandler in 1909, 1910, as they're turning the house into a museum. And for many years, the interpretation of it has changed. So starting in like the 30s, 40s, more so like the 40s after Caroline Emerton died in 1942, they started saying that it was real. And so if you visited in the 50s, 60s, 70s, really up until 2004, you heard different stories about why there's this staircase of 20 steps that winds up through the chimney. And they ranged, like, I think they sort of reflect the cultural periods. Like there's the American Indian attacks is one explanation that people gave, or the revolution and hiding loyalists from the British or for smuggling goods or for um, the Salem witch trials and hide it. That was the most popular explanation was it was built by John Turner to hide his sisters from the Salem witch trials. But we know that the staircase as it exists was only built in 1909. You know, it did not exist for any of those historical. And then the, by the late eighties, the underground railroad became the big story. And um, we know now that, the house's history is a little more complicated. And so I was doing a lot of research on this last year. And something that was lost is Caroline Emerton never claims that it was original. In the Chronicle of Three Old Houses and everywhere, she is saying, and in all the newspaper articles about the restoration of the gables, I'm building this staircase to replace what was once there. And so to me, that's the really cool thing is Henry Upton who lived in the house before Emerton bought it, told her that when he took the chimney down in about 1888, 1890, he discovered a secret staircase in the house that he then took out. And that's what Caroline Emerton was trying to return to. So you could speculate on the origins of that original secret staircase. What I think it was and what the historic structure report says is that it was probably just an old back staircase that got closed in by closets as the house changed around. And then if you were to open it, you'd be like, why is this a secret staircase hidden in the wall? Whereas it is just sort of the nature of these changing houses that it probably brought people up to the attic. It was very cramped staircase that was no longer needed at one point. Um, But, you know, there is an actual mystery there. Like what was this old secret, supposedly secret staircase that, Henry Upton discovered. So we don't know for sure. Yeah, we don't. All we have is Caroline Emerton talking about what Henry Upton told her, uh, which is that, you know, he discovered the secret stairs. He climbed down it, so he discovered it from the top. He said it went, I think, just to the third. I think he said it went from the attic down to the first floor. But then at one point there was speculation that it might have only been like a one-story staircase i think that's what the structure report speculates but it um it's it's genuine mystery and now it's probably one of the highlights of each tour yeah and i there is one thing I, i'd also like to talk about is this sort of touches on um is that servant staircase it might have been 
one thing that I think is important to mention before we wrap up is that the Turners enslave Africans at the House of the Seven Gables. And so we know of five people, um, Titus and Lewis, two men, and then Rebecca, Phyllis, and Jane, who were enslaved by the Turners here. And so that's something that, you know, there's stories about the house being involved in the Underground Railroad and stuff. Like, that's all mythology. But it was actually part of this system that enslaved, you know, that was a cornerstone of Salem's economy for centuries. And so part of what we do here and what I've been doing is trying to bring those stories more into the forefront. And so we're redoing some of our interpretation in the house to talk a little bit more. Like we've been talking about it for about 20 years now, but bringing it more into focus as one of the many really important stories here. But Do you think there's hope to uncovering more about those stories? Because I remember uh, when I took the tour, the guide brought it up and uh, pulled out, I think it was one of John Turner's inventory reports and mentioned their names. And that's really the only record that we have to show of their existence. So do you think there is a chance that you'll find more? It's possible. So it's really like you're looking at a a time that, you know, the white supremacist ethos was baked into society, like enslaved people, did not often read or write. Like, there's no written record of their own. And so you can find them in different pieces here and there, but they were considered secondary in the society. So you don't, you can find little traces. And so when I started researching that a few years ago, I was able to uncover some things that we didn't know before. And so every now and then I'll get really lucky and find another piece of the puzzle. I don't know how many more pieces of the puzzle are out there one of my coworkers had a really good analogy which is like you're um doing like a one of those like exploratory video games or something where like you go into a room and like it's another piece of the map has like that lights up lights up and so it's like a lot of this history whether it be the enslaved people or the turners or caroline emerton there's so many unknowns but every now and then if you're really persistent and patient with some of the written records and stuff you can illuminate another little corner of the map so there is hope yeah that's that's really cool though i i didn't i didn't know any of that so yeah. and there it's, we go. it's uh, i mean it's a, something that's true for a lot of the historic houses in salem that are pre-revolution is mm-hmm. a lot of them were built by wealthier families that had connections like the witch house as well yeah if they had the money to build something this large they usually were uh, keeping people as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about Tichabon, we've had a whole episode uh, about her and how uh, it's both uh, amazing that we have so many of her words, yeah, but also very frustrating because we don't actually have any of her words. Yeah. They're all filtered through judges yeah. or people taking down. And people always ask me, why'd she do that? Why'd she do that? Why? And I was like, yeah, we can try to sort of gain some uh, concept or historical understanding, but really the only evidence we have is nearly infinitely more than any other person in her position for that time in the area, and yet still it is not her own words. And we have no idea, like she was probably resold into slavery after the trials, and we have no idea what happened to her. She probably died enslaved. We don't know when that happened. Like it's, it's so frustrating. For all that we have, we're missing so much. Yeah. 
I mean, I'll, I'll say one. I don't know if this is where we want to end because it's such a downer. <laughs> but the um, one thing, like one perspective I, I think is really helpful is like people asking the, you know, the, the stereotypical Salem question is like, oh, where did they burn the witches? Oh. Like all that stuff. And like Salem didn't burn witches, witches weren't. But there were two women burned at the stake in New England and they were both enslaved women because that was the punishment for killing your master. And so there was a woman named Mariah in 1681 in Cambridge who was accused of starting a fire, and she was burnt at the stake. And then in 1755, there was a woman from, um, oh gosh, where was it? Medford or Charleston named Phyllis who was, she was accused of, they conspired to poison their enslaver. And so she was burnt at the stake and so there's that side of things like people associate they're like oh well yeah no there was no like people weren't burnt at the stake but not white women accused of witchcraft but enslaved women accused of treason like petty treason as they called it so that is part of like that brutal history of doing them that we've tried to forget for a long time it's stunning that we don't talk about that more i had heard you know, just along the grapevine that there were a couple of instances, um, but of course they weren't related to witch trials mm-hmm. or witchcraft. Um, it's something that should be talked about more. And it's a good opportunity for us to talk about it more on tour because we do get that question all the time. Yeah. It's a staple. I think, I think that's, that's all we got. Thank you so much, David, for joining us today and taking time out of your (laughs) very busy schedule and welcoming us into such a historic location to record. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wealth of information. That was, that was a lot of fun. So uh, thank you. If if anyone comes to the Gables, can you request a tour guide? Um, (laughs) I don't think so, but you, I mean, I'll probably be here most days if you want to talk to me. There you go. Uh, ask for David. He's got answers to clearly all the questions. He's your guy. So, there we go. Thanks for listening. See you later. Mm-hmm.